0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. First Corinthians has been really good. It's been really good to study. I hope that it's been a benefit to you as well. Uh, Last week, we were in First Corinthians chapter 2. reminded us that our wisdom is not of this world, right? But it is is of Christ, and it is of the cross. And so for the Christian, our wisdom comes from God and is embodied in the message of the gospel. Amen? Amen? That's where it comes from. Now, this wisdom of the cross might look foolish to some people, right? We covered that, didn't we? That from the outside looking in, what we call wisdom, the world would call foolish and ignorant. And uh, we have to accept that truth, don't we? We have to accept that reality. This should not hinder us in any way whatsoever in terms of our faith. We should accept it and move forward knowing that the cross is our strength, as we just got done singing. And so that's absolutely critical. Now further in chapter 2, we discover that when we humble ourselves, when we lower ourselves, when we present ourselves as weak and fearful and trembling in the ministry of the Lord that he is going to be faithful to use us to display his power of the gospel everywhere we go and in every relationship that we build and in every opportunity that we have. He will show himself faithful, and uh, he is our power and and our strength, uh, not just in terms of our belief unto salvation, but for our living from day to day and our work of the ministry. Now, Paul reminded the Corinthian church that that when he came to evangelize them, Right? This is what we looked at last week, that when he came to evangelize them and to preach the gospel and to disciple them, that he didn't come in the enticing words of, with the enticing words of men or in the excellence of his flesh, but he came in humility. And for us, that is the how, isn't it? Okay? We're talking about wisdom, and that's kind of been the conversation over the last few weeks. That's the how for us. That's how we present ourselves in the work of the ministry. We do that in fearfulness and trembling before the Lord, knowing that we steward a mighty work. And that if we rely on our flesh to do the work of God, we will only just get in the way, and we do stand in danger of neutralizing the power that he's extended to us. And we can't afford to let that happen. So we must humble ourselves. We must present ourselves as fearful stewards of the work of God. And so with this, uh, with this how and the how we present ourselves and in what speech we come, we look to the wisdom of God and we understand that, that the wisdom of the Lord is always at its very best when we're, at our very, when we're at our very weakest. And now we need to learn how to invest it. So today's sermon is going to focus uh, our attention on answering a handful of very important questions about stewarding the work of wisdom. How do we steward the work of wisdom? If we know the right posture for our lives, we understand it's based and rooted in humility, how do we move forward? And how do we live a life that is sourced completely in wisdom? How do we make that investment in other people? How do we continue to grow in wisdom from day to day? Am I, like, right up on you? I like that. (laughs) Eva's right here. It's like I'm preaching at my wife. I don't get to do this at home here. (laughs) I can say all the things I've been waiting to say. Sorry, that's bad. We've got a lot to cover today. I don't have time to mess around. How do we continue to grow in wisdom? Has anybody ever wondered that? I mean, a lot of us in this room, we're new believers, right? We're new to Christ. Salvation is new. We feel like babies in the Lord. How do we move forward in continual growth and wisdom now that we've attained it through salvation? How do we steward the responsibility of wisdom? And that is our question for today. Let's pray and then we'll we'll get into it. All the answers are here, I promise. We'll get to them. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. Um, You've been so gracious to us. You counted us who were, you know, were not worthy. Uh, If we consider the list of sin in our life and all the ways in which we've failed you and all the ways in which we've presented ourselves as hypocrites, we absolutely do not deserve to steward the wisdom of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, um, I have nothing that I can say uh, but thank you. And, and I have no other request to make but, um, but help me. Or well, help me. Help me to carry that cross. You know, I, I, des- I desire, you know, I, I like, just like the song imagines. I just I, I love the idea that, that as you carried the cross to Calvary, that I would be the one uh, to jump out and to help you. Um, but the truth is, um, I probably wouldn't have. that's how undeserving we are. And um, so we need your help (laughs) that we might help you in the endeavor of the Great Commission. Uh, We need your strength. We need your power. And you need to teach us, Lord, that we might own the responsibility with integrity and virtue. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well. There we go. <laughs> the floodgates are open. All right. We're going to read the text, can we? That will allow me to gather myself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 begins this way. How be it? We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, Eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Amen? But God hath re- revealed them unto us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of God, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges, judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This week in the, in the Kaya chat, Larry made reference to this, but there was a, one of the young men in this ministry is thinking about praying through whether or not he should, he should purchase his first home. And it made me think a lot about this sermon. You know, when you're in your mid-20s, mid to late 20s, and you've got a good job, that's the type of thing that you think about. You think, you know, is it time? Is it time for me to buy a house? We all know that owning is a better investment in most cases than renting, Right. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a typical young person thought. Should I buy a house? Now, the questions that come with that are questions of investment, right? We know that the, the market right now is a little bit uh, unstable, if you will. We have no idea what things are going to look like from day to day, and the, and the market might drop out. Things might change very rapidly, and a house that's worth one thing one day might be worth something completely different a few weeks or months from now. And so it is a tough decision knowing how to invest and how to make an investment, and and to anticipate what making that investment might look like. I mean, you have to foresee a lot of things. For instance, you know, what does it look like once I purchase that house to fix fix the HVAC when it goes out? Right? That's a a few thousand dollar fix. That's no small thing. And so you've got to be thinking very deliberately about financial decisions you make. And, and the same thing is true in our sermon today. We want to know how to steward the thing that God has extended to us. Because we are all in danger of misapplying. We're all in danger of that. And we have to move forward in, in wisdom as it concerns these investments. And how do we make the investment of wisdom? So we're going to look today at, uh, you know, what it looks like, what it looks like to make wisdom the investment of our life. And as Christians, we know that we're responsible to invest by preaching the gospel, right? That's the deposit that we make into the lives of other people. That's the investment, right? And we talked about this a lot at the fall retreat when we talked about sowing seeds. It's the same concept. Now, as Christians, we're responsible to, uh, to, to do this because of the Great Commission. And many of you may be familiar with the Great Commission, all right, that phrase. But, but if not... Uh, You can see it spelled out for you very clearly in Matthew 28, but also in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was speaking with his disciples, he expresses to them just how significant making this investment really is. This is what he says. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is an investment that we're supposed to be making into people's lives, not just here locally in Kansas City, not just regionally here in the Midwest, not just nationally as we travel across America planting churches, but this is a global investment that we're supposed to be making and we cannot neglect it. We cannot afford to neglect it. It's a critical investment. And it is an investment of the wisdom of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to steward wisdom well? What does it mean to make full use of the resources of wisdom that God has given us? Let's start with this question. In whom do we invest? In whom do we invest? It's an important question. And according to verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Now the word perfect here means Mature. Okay, the Bible uses that word perfect in a way that we, that's different than the way we use it. today. we think of perfect, uh, um, I don't know who you think of when you think of perfect, right? Um, I can't really think of anybody, but some of y'all might think of, I don't know, your favorite musician. Oh, he's so dreamy, so perfect. We're not really using the word that way. Okay, we're talking about maturity. Maturity, maturity in terms of character, in in terms of personality. Paul expresses how when God's wisdom is taught, it is received among those that are mature enough to withhold judgment. All right? Now, let's just for a second, let's paint the picture of this individual. Someone that's mature is is, is a person who's willing to hear the gospel from an, an, an objective position, they have open ears and open eyes, and, and, and that seed falls on soft ground. That's a mature person. Now, we don't know very many people like that. You know? Lots of people are quick to reject. But when we're talking about making an investment in perfect individuals, what we're talking about is people who are willing to hear, to withhold their judgment long enough to be objective and to consider the truth. And we're also talking about people who are willing to receive it with honesty and openness, and that goes for the Christian and non-Christian alike. You know, there are many disciples, people who call themselves Christians, who are not willing to receive the truth of God's word or wisdom with an open mind. They come to the table with preconceptions. And they have a hard time learning. Now, let's just be honest. You signed up for discipleship. You signed up for it. You wanted it. You said, yeah, I want to learn. But it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So this is the truth. This is the truth. We're talking about of those who receive the gospel salvation. Those people are mature in terms of their perfection. They're willing to hear the truth of God's word. We're talking about those who are perfect. They are, they're willing to be discipled. They're willing to listen. They're willing to grow. Right? They're, they're open to it. Growing in sanctification and knowledge. And this is true even in LFBI. There are many people who get to the place where they're learning at the Bible Institute level the deeper things of God's word, but you can suddenly come to a place where you're resistant and you become a a bad steward of the wisdom that God has extended to you. So what the passage is telling us is that we need to, as ambassadors of wisdom, we need to choose to invest in people who by habit and virtue hunger to receive teaching in honesty. That's who we're called to invest in. So we ask, her, well, well, who do I minister to? Who do I, who do I pour wisdom into? People who are willing, people who are hungry, people who are receptive. That's who we pour our lives into. Now, I'm not telling you that because someone has been resistant that you quit. You've got coworkers who have been resistant, and you continue to be persistent because they're right there. People in your classes, people in your, the program of study that you're in, people that you encounter day to day, you should never stop investing in them. If they're available to you and they're in, in your life, you need to be pouring that wisdom their direction. But the truth is, some receive it and some don't. And we focus the majority of our life's attention into those that are willing to receive it. This is the same reason why Jesus was willing uh, to tell his disciples to dust off their feet when they went to a city that refused the gospel and refused the truth. Just, just dust off your feet and move on to the next city. Okay, that's, adv- that's advice that we should all heed. If people are unwilling to listen, well, there's many people who are willing to listen. and We need to find them. We need to go pursue them. And so for the teacher and the preacher, we can't afford to invest in those who refuse to be invested in. Christ instructed his disciples this way. And I want to paint it as a picture because I got to experience this thing firsthand. Uh, when I was in, uh, on the mission trip that we took to India, whatever it was, five years pre-COVID, five years, six years ago now, we went and we, uh, we were evangelizing on uh, Juhu Beach in Mumbai. And, and so um, there's, a, there's a, a very, like one of the biggest beaches I've ever been on in my life. There's, on a Friday night, there were literally thousands of people just walking around, enjoying one another's company, building bonfires. I mean, incredible amount of people just your age, okay? Indians in their 20s, hanging out, playing games. And so we went out evangelizing there one night. And people were really receptive. It's incredible how many people in India have never, ever heard the gospel and are completely unfamiliar with anything other than just maybe the name Jesus. It's incredible. Now, we, we preached the gospel, and we, we got the opportunity to lead several people to Christ right there on the beach. But we got to one conversation, and, and uh, Ganesh, with well, the guy that we were working at was, well, with, was translating, and, uh, which... There's a really ironic thing because he didn't need me one bit, <laughs> right? He's he's following the white guy around and translating what he could just very clearly present the gospel himself. But but it's having there's novelty in having the white guy there. So I'm walking around and I'm sharing the gospel in English, and he's translating for me and people are listening. Okay, um, I mean in the middle of the night, I'm sure my skin was like glowing white on the beach, like here. <laughs> Look, there's a white guy. I see him 200 yards away. <laughs> What's he doing here? So people were interested, and so, you know, I walk up, and I'm sharing gospel with people, and he's translating, and it was going really well. But I got to this one conversation, and, um, and uh, there was a lot of resistance. This guy was a very strong in his Hindu uh, beliefs. And after uh, pleading with him and using ap- apologetics, the apologetics that I've been taught my whole life, right, um, he was resistant, and, and um, I'll never forget what Ganesh said, because I was, I was continuing. Like, I thought I could just give me another more opportunity. Let me just keep talking to this guy. And Ganesh turned to me, and he said, Brother, quit casting your pearls before swine. That was hard for me to hear, but it was truth. Truth. And it's truth that Jesus taught us as well. Matthew 7, 6 says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest, the, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. You know, the swine wouldn't know what to do with, with pearls, would they? They have no concept of treasure. And all they know how to do would be to simply trample them beneath the feet and lose them in the mud and the muck and the mire of the earth. They wouldn't know any better. And And the truth is, for those who are, um, their hearts are hardened, um, God God will not quit, okay? I want to point this out. God will not quit on those individuals that you pray for. I do not know the man uh, that I was preaching to that day, but I'll tell you this, I'll never forget him, and I will never stop praying for him. And even though that day he was resistant to the message that I brought to him, well, God's a very difficult man to deny. And I pray that the hounds of heaven would find him out and that the Holy Spirit would continue to do the work that I could not do. See, that's the beauty of knowing God, and that's that's also part of the wisdom of God. But the truth is, Paul says we speak the wisdom of God, and, and, and yet, you know, further we need to understand that, that, that that's not the wisdom of this world. He, he, he once again delineates between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And by way of repetition, we need to understand this as well. The wisdom of men... It relies on the narrow insights of our limited view, doesn't it? A single, right? The wisdom of men is a single, simple lens into our world, which operates on the fuel of, of personal motives, doesn't it? Yes. Every person's perspective, every, pers- every man's wisdom is at its very core operating in light of personal motive, what they can get from their reality. We can't help but to to be that way. And so we see everything in in those terms, in that single facet, in that single view. That's how we view the whole world. And it causes us to miss out on the truth of who God is. But the wisdom of God is much greater and operates on divine revelation and on power. And every person must decide whether or not they will be mature enough to humble themselves in order to receive the wisdom of God. Every person has to make that decision. How they're going to posture themselves when truth arrives on their doorstep. You guys remember Job? You know the story of Job? Yeah. Uh, when his life was at its very worst, his friends used their wisdom, the wisdom of men, to try and expose Job for what they thought was his hidden sin. Do you remember that? Remember that? And they were just belaboring this dude. I mean, the majority of the book, this is a long book. Like, you've got to be committed if you're gonna read Job, by the way. Because chapter after chapter, these guys are using their own wisdom to counsel Job. And the whole time, they're working on trying to expose some sort of hidden sin that's in his life. Okay, that's the wisdom of men. Now, Job responds in the wisdom of men, too. He also, he becomes defensive. He he, he thinks in selfish terms. He wants to defend his pride, and so he fights back. And he tries to debate with his friends and here we got the wisdom of a man back and forth, back and forth. And all the while, chapter after chapter, God is just standing in the background, listening in, and is disgusted by what he's hearing. And at a certain point, God intervenes. It's an amazing story. He shows up in a whirlwind, so God's speaking out of a tornado. (laughs) Do you guys ever just, just are just amazed by stuff? God is amazing. Out of the whirlwind, God speaks. And he says, who is it, who is this that that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. I mean, and humanity, we want to operate from that single-focused, single-faceted simplicity of men's wisdom, always under selfish motives, and we want to think that way, we want to operate that way, and we want to go through life just like that, and we're satisfied that way. Look, I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian alike. We do this. We are satisfied with a narrow view, and God's saying to us, look, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? You lack understanding. You lack it. We lack understanding. We have wisdom unto salvation, but the question is, do we have wisdom unto sanctification? Now, Job had no choice in this moment but to repent of his own wisdom and the wisdom of men. Listen to what he says. Job 42, 3. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Wait, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Right? He confesses his lack of knowledge. He confesses his lack of understanding. He confesses his need for God to speak into his life. He confesses his, his, uh, his, his weakness in the flesh. He confesses it. See, worldly wisdom lacks God's power and, etern- and eternal insight. Isn't that what we want, believers? Paul spoke with the wisdom of God, a wisdom, as we will see, That has been supernaturally extended to us as well through the gospel. So, the wisdom that Paul spoke in Corinth with is the same wisdom that God has given us. In fact, Christians and Christians are the only ones who have the capacity for such wisdom and understanding. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6 again. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, okay? Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of God. What, what an amazing statement that is that not even the princes and rulers of this world have the ability to properly discern or understand wisdom. You know, after all, it was kings and rulers who saw Christ and his miracles, who heard his very words, and yet still chose to execute him. And after all, it was King Agrippa who when hearing Paul preach the gospel in power and authority, could in pride say, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Good try, Paul. See, that's that's the wisdom of the world on display. And it's here that we must remember a very important key point, and that's this. Wisdom discriminates against those who discriminate against her. Wisdom is is discriminatory. It absolutely is. Wisdom is looking for those who are willing to be open to truth. But it absolutely 100% refuses every individual who who, who refuses to listen. It's just like what Sam was saying in the other service. He was talking about what God is looking for is people who are willing to hear. Right? But so many of us are using our eyes to discern truth. We're looking for evidences of truth. And all the while, we're stopping up our ears to the power and the authority of the gospel. Wisdom does discriminate against those who discriminate against her. Proverbs fourteen six says, A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not, but knowledge is easy unto him that understandeth. Wisdom is not a benefit of education. It is not analogous to authority or power or experience. Wisdom is reserved for those who are the children of wisdom. God's children. That's who wisdom is reserved for. Those who will stand in the millennial kingdom judging even the angels. That's who wisdom is for. It's unto us, those who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, who've been set free by the gospel, those of us who've been knit into the family of God, adopted uh, uh, unto Jesus Christ. For those of us who know him intimately and call him friend, that's who wisdom is for. That's who it's reserved for. And with all that, I want to briefly explain to you that God has quite literally revealed mysteries to the church that have not previously been revealed to anyone else. That there are truths that, were, that, that God held onto and hid in the covering of a mystery that only the church has become privy to. That, that the saints of old, in the Old Testament we read about Abraham, and we read about Moses, and we read about the saints of old, and there are truths that were hidden from them that only the church could possibly know. In fact, there are seven of these mysteries, and we're going to walk through them right now. Verse 7 says, "...but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery." even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. In other words, these mysteries that we're about to talk about were hidden from the foundations of the earth. They were hidden deep inside the plan of God and that there came a moment in which he chose to reveal them and he extended those mysteries to us. Oh, what a great and mighty thing to steward is the mysteries of God. And so let's walk through these real quick. Romans 16, 25. Let's begin here because this is going to frame for us uh, something very, very important in terms of the stewardship of this wisdom. It says uh, in verse 25, Now to, them, uh, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by, by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So God has revealed seven unique mysteries that no saint could have possibly understood until the church age began, until the, the completion of Scripture was extended to us. Now, okay, now let me pause here for a second. And I want to tell you that I'm doing a lot more teaching today than I am preaching, okay? But, it, but the passage lends itself to this, and this is information that I promise you, you want to know. Okay, this is information that you want to know. These are nuggets These are nuggets that you don't have to wait until LFBI to get. All right? So so listen carefully. There's seven of these things in the New Testament, and I want to point them all out to you, and we'll go through it fairly quickly. The first thing is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness has been revealed to us, church. And In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and believed on in the world, received up into glory. Okay, so this, this mystery is the revelation that God, while remaining fully God, took on flesh and became fully man at the exact same time. Two natures, one Christ. Big deal. Big deal. Now, this is something that that no saint of old could have ever possibly understood. They had the prophecies of the Messiah. They understood the nature of redemption. There was truth that they had. There was things to anticipate prophetically, but not a one of them knew the mystery of godliness. That is, Jesus Christ, all God, 100%. Not 50-50. All God and all man. Perfect. Divine transcendent of time in human form never to sin and to give his very life for our sake that's the mystery of godliness and the thing that we need to take away from that it's that the critical truth is that jesus is all god and all man and he establishes power and authority authority to redeem mankind and to draw us into his worship that's what he does that's a big deal that's a mystery that we're so thankful that God has revealed to the church. The next thing is this. The mystery of Christ in you. The mystery of Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 tells of us what this is. To whom God, who make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the revelation that God's spirit indwells the believer permanently. Okay? Never happened before. The Old Testament saint couldn't have understand that. They had, they had knowledge of the Spirit of God. We see stories of, of men like David. The Spirit of God would come upon them, and they would be moved by God to do things that would seem un, unfathomable, but to the average believer. We know that the Spirit moved, but listen, this is a mystery that was revealed in the church, and we see it manifest in Acts chapter, chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit begins to indwell men for the first time. This was a mystery revealed to the church. It's a beautiful thing. And it's something for us to steward with great care. A critical truth that we need to understand from this mystery is that God has empowered every Christian from the inside out. Big deal. Number three, the mystery of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 32 is where you would want to camp out. I'll read just verse 32 for the sake of time. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, The the very nature of the church as being the bride of Christ, the embodiment of Christ on earth, the fact that he gathered together, I mean, look at us. We're a mess. We're a mess. And he's drawn us together in the bond of Christ and made us one and unified us for his sake that we might be made useful. And that he would conform us to his image so that one day we would be able to sit down with him in heavenly places and celebrate the union of marriage between Christ and his bride. This is a great mystery. There is something that connects us to one another that could have never been connected. That not even the nation of Israel itself could have understood. Man, that's powerful. It's a powerful truth. The mystery of the church. And it's critical for us to understand in order to know our responsibility to Him as His eternal bride. Number four, the mystery of the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means die, but we shall all be changed. In other words, there will be people who never actually lay their head down to die, that they never have to taste of death, that they'll be delivered And not just that, every person that has ever known Christ will be changed immediately upon encountering His coming for us. There's a lot to say about this. We're not going to do it. Take the sevens class. Okay? Take the sevens class. We're offering it this summer. And you can take it self-paced. Now, this is the revelation that God will resurrect the dead who've believed on Him and bring those who are living currently Okay, or at the moment of his return, he will bring them home to live with him in heaven forever. And that way, and in that way, we will avoid the wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. This is a critical truth. Why? Because we need to understand that we need to live like he's going to come at any moment. That's how we have to live. This mystery is critical for us, the church, to understand because we have to perceive his coming as eminent and we want him to find us doing his work. That's why we have to know this. Absolutely important. The mystery of the rest, uh, restoration of Israel. The mystery of the restoration of Israel. Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, If you read Romans chapter 9 through 11, you're going to get the entire picture book of God's plan for regrafting the nation of Israel back in. Now, let me explain this to you because I know that there's a lot of people in here who are unfamiliar with this concept. But when the Messiah came and Jesus Christ came to earth, and you can read this. We studied it out in Acts, that over time, Israel had plenty of opportunity to receive her Messiah and didn't. They refused him time and time again. And there came a point of of divorcement, if you will. Not a permanent one, but one of separation. And and, and Jesus Christ and the the Spirit determined that they would focus their attention on the Gentile nations. Okay? Now, at the point that the fullness of the Gentiles' salvation has come in, at the point of the rapture, God will refocus his attention on the nation of Israel, and he's promised to restore them. That's what Jacob's trouble is all about. Again... LFBI, y'all. So this is is important. This is the revelation that God will keep his promises because he promises all throughout the whole Old Testament that he's going to redeem Israel. He promises it. All those promises that we learned about about Abraham in the last service, those promises extended, those things don't become defunct. God isn't in the business of taking back promises, okay? He's got a no-take-back policy, (laughs) all right? And he is committed to fulfilling everything that he's ever said. And it's important for us to to know that because because I would prefer to serve a God who keeps his promises. I like that idea. God is not a liar. We're the liars. And when we say that he's not going to redeem Israel or we say things like we've replaced Israel as the church, we're liars. Because we speak against his promises. This is a critical truth to understand because we need to know that God's heart for his people, the nation of Israel, is a big deal to him. And because they belong to him and because he loves them, we ought to love them too. Big deal to God. That's a mystery. That's a mystery that's been revealed to us, the church. The next thing is the mystery of iniquity. You guys hanging with me here? Second Thessalonians 2.7 says... Again, New Testament, right? This is revelation of mystery for the church. We need to know this. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who, ha- who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This mystery reveals that Satan is at work in this world to undermine God. And his goal and his, and his objective is to prepare a kingdom for himself. This is the revelation that one day after the rapture of the church... The person of the Antichrist will deceive the world into trusting him and believe him as the sovereign authority. Satan will convince people that the Antichrist is Christ, that he is the Messiah. Come. And they will be deceived. Now, this is a critical truth for us to understand because we need to know that Satan's work in this world is now. It's contemporaneous. We need to know that he's got objectives that run counter to our own and he's, he is plotting and scheming even right now. And I love the timing here, though I hate it at the same time. Because if you've been watching the news, it is clear that uh, Satan is scheming. He's scheming, he's preparing. And, uh, you know, for those who are Interested in such things as eschatology and the end of the world? I'm interested by it. uh, You will find that Russia is present and powerful at the end of all things. To to quote Lord of the Rings, (laughs) the end of all things, right? And uh, man, um, he's deceptive. The Antichrist is at work even now in the world, and we are, the world is filled with, filled with Antichrists, lowercase a, Antichrists. And, uh, and, and we can see them at work if we have eyes to see it. That's the mystery of iniquity. Now, the seventh is the mystery of Babylon, Revelation 17, 5. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery, of, uh, mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. Now, if you study this out, which we clearly don't have time to do, what you understand is that this great whore, uh, the, uh, the whore of Babylon, is actually, you like when I say that? Is that funny? Teresa's laughing at me. Whore is a biblical word, okay? I'm saying it because it's in the Bible. She's the mother of harlots. Now listen, uh, the thing about this, the thing you understand, is that this is the amalgamation of all world religions under the authority of the Antichrist. That's how that's going to play out. But what we need to understand is that even the, 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 the mystery of Babylon is at work even now, which is why you have things like the, pap- the, the papal authority saying that the Islamic world is their brother, right? That ki- the Catholic Church and, and, and Islam are kindred spirits, that they're, they're united, and they don't see their, their, gods, their gods as different from one another and so what you're seeing is this bleeding in of universalism. This is the coexist bumper sti- sticker, come alive, you know. And th- this is what this is referring to, is that one day these, these re- world religions will come under the banner and the power of the Antichrist. Now, wow, Brandon, I didn't anticipate this in 1 Corinthians. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> I studied it, and I, I was reminded here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that God has extended to us, great and mighty mysteries that we're responsible for stewarding. And so I thought to myself, well, do I include include the seven mysteries in this sermon? Yes, I do, because you need to know them. And and, and so maybe you only know them at a superficial level right now. but, But this is the thing that I want to point out to you is that God's word is worth knowing. And it's the completion of Scripture, right? Genesis through Revelation, the completion of Scripture extended to us that allows us to understand things about God that we could have never understood without him. And when we're talking about wisdom, we cannot distinguish wisdom as some sort of abstract, ethereal thing. We can't distinguish it from what this book actually says. The the revelation of wisdom has been given to us in this book. And we must understand it in all of its mysteries. And we've got to devote ourselves to knowing it because this is what we steward. If we're to steward wisdom, this is what we steward. And so for our purposes today, these mysteries were entrusted to us so that we might believe them, live them, and teach them. Yes. And that leads us to this next key point. Christians must be faithful to what God, what God has revealed to them. We have to be. We have to be faithful to the things that God has told us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let a man so account of us, as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards of the mysteries. We're held accountable for that stewardship. God is watching to see how we steward this responsibility. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. What a huge responsibility it is to know and understand God's unique design through His Word. It's a huge privilege to be able to look at the Bible in all of its revelation and compare page after page and verse after verse to one another in order to understand the very mind of Christ. It's a privilege. And I want to s- suggest, just in honesty, not in judgment, that perhaps there are people in this room that call themselves Christian but fail to steward God's word rightly. You don't read it. You don't spend time with it. You don't study it. You don't see it as a student. You don't approach it as a scientist. Too many Christians going around calling themselves followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus, and yet they're not willing to spend time with him to know his mind and be faithful to what he's revealed. He has bestowed so much upon those who love him. Verse 9 of, of chapter 2. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. It's incredible. We could have never in, our, in, in the limited nature of our mind known what God had prepared for us. That he's been preparing for us. From the foundations of the world, how could we have possibly known unless he revealed it to us himself? It's a big deal. He has prepared for us his revealed wisdom in his word, promises and purposes that unfold like a roadmap of faith, truths that unlock his plan for us. But how is it that no one before the church age believer could understand or see these truths? How is it That we can receive these truths. Well, it has everything to do with what God has given us in His Spirit. And that's the next thing. Look at verse 10. What does it say? But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. So the mysteries were first and foremost revealed by the Spirit of God. We know that from 2 Peter 1, verse 20. All right? It says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy, in other words, the prophecies of Scripture... And the fact that they were written down and established. The no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It means that we don't have the right to approach it with our preconceptions and opinions. We don't get to impose upon it. Right? It gets to impose itself upon us. It reads us. It undoes us. It rewrites the way we think. It reprograms our minds, not the other way around. It's not of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, the Spirit of God inspired the prophets to write his very words as a revelation to his people. But it's not, it doesn't just stop there. The Spirit didn't just stop there. He didn't just say, here's a book. All right, that's, that's not where he stopped. The Spirit has done so much more for the Christian. Again, look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things. See, the Spirit's at work, searching us out. Yea, the deep things of God, for what man knoweth the things of a a man? Save the spirit of a man which is in him, right? That goes back to that single perspective, that simple-mindedness. See, the spirit of a man, lowercase s, the spirit of a man, what can he possibly know about the things of God? What can you in your own mind, in your own capacity, know of an infinite God who laid the foundations of the world? Were you there, Job? No, you weren't there. You weren't there. See, you need something to intercede on your behalf. Look at what it says. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit indwells you so that you might understand that the Word of God is as broad as any ocean ever and as deep as as any place, deep as any place in the ocean that you could find. It is vast, it is deep, and the Spirit of God reveals to the heart of man even the most mysterious truths. That's the Spirit's work. So in man's natural spirit, there is no capacity to understand the the deep things of God. It's only by the Spirit of God in us that we have eyes to see His truth. And for those who are not indwelled by the Spirit, for those those who are not saved by God, they may be convicted by the the preaching of the gospel. But they cannot know the things of God because that requires the Spirit. And so their aptitude for understanding what God has revealed in in His Word is zilch. So let me explain to you what I mean by this. You know, a lot of us Christians, we go around and we expect that the lost world might be able to see and understand things that we get, and we get real frustrated, don't we? But what I want to point out to you is that they don't even have the aptitude to understand them because they're not indwelled by the Spirit. You can't expect... Lost people sin, you understand? That's what they do. That's what they have capacity for. They're limited in their ability, and so when they look at the Word of God... They can't understand the truths. They can't understand the mysteries. They can't compare Scripture with Scripture because they don't have it in them. It requires the Spirit, which is why we lead men to Christ so that the Spirit of God might indwell them and that their eyes might be open and the blinders might fall and they might understand for the very first time the truth of the universe. And when I say that, I mean it in the most crazy way. That for the very first time, they might understand the truth of who God is. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Jump down to verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of of the Spirit of God, right? For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. No, the truth is that in our natural man, we can't understand the depths of God. We can't understand his word, we can't understand his mysteries. And knowing how to grow in truth requires us to submit ourselves to Christ, to believe on him for salvation. And that is our next key point. The Spirit of God is faithful to teach us how to apply God's word. We need the Spirit. Because what does the Spirit do? It teaches us. It teaches us how to make the words of God reality in our lives. To take these things. that For for so many of us, it's difficult to understand the word. You've got to walk before you run. You understand? And so you start in one place. You start with milk, and you work your way towards steak. All right? When, when, I, had, you know, when I had a baby, we weren't, we weren't f- feeding young Eloise at one steak and lobster. Okay? We gave her simple foods. Right? And as time went on, I mean, she still doesn't like, she doesn't really like steak. She's worked her way up to um, French fries. <laughs> That's where we've gotten it. Ch- chicken tenders and ranch when you, get, when you have a 3 or 4 or 5 year old re- you realize that ranch owns you <laughs> you, 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 ha- you, like, you might as well buy stock in ranch <laughs> now hidden valley ok um, but that's because, because you grow into deeper things and we have to understand that and the spirit of God takes you for that journey it reveals one truth, one truth upon another truth. And over time, you grow. I was thinking this morning, I saw Larry doing announcements. I was like, look at that guy. Look at him growing. I'm so, I'm so proud of that guy. And I, I was thinking, 10 feet from where he's standing right now, I led him to the Lord like three and a half years ago. I couldn't help but think about that. felt good. And I, Man, isn't it true? Day after day, Month after month, year after year, God grows you. He transforms you. He makes you something new. You know, Christ was explaining this truth to his disciples about the Spirit. And he was telling them how he would one day be leaving them. They didn't like that. And uh, he was talking about his ascension into heaven, that he was going to disappear for a while. I'm going to be gone. But I'm going to leave you with the Comforter. That's how he referred to the Spirit of God, the Comforter. Look at John 16, 13. How be when he, when he, the Spirit of truth... Love that phrase for it, right? The Spirit of truth, the revealer of truth, the Spirit of truth is come. He will guide you in all truth. That's pretty straightforward. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and he shall show it unto you. That's a pretty awesome promise. So, it so says the word show here three times. He's going to show it to you. And Paul affirms this to be true in our own lives too, that the Spirit of God is our teacher, and as our teacher, he teaches us for mastery. Okay, let me explain that to you. I think that's an important point. You remember being in high school, right? Some of you, that was like six months ago, so you better say yes. <laughs> okay, you remember being in high school, and in high school, you focus so much of your energy on memorizing crap that you wouldn't need as soon as the semester was over. Remember that? And the teacher promoted this. Like this was somehow learning. This is how we do learning. Here's a list of all the stuff that I want you to memorize. There will be five tests this semester. Figure it out. But the moment that you leave, if this just falls out of your head and you never remember ever again, that's okay. You've passed the test and you got through high school. Good job. Pat yourself on that. You know what I mean? At least that's how they look, folks. I mean, to the Asian students, that's how they do it in America. I, y'all got something else going on, I know. Okay? That's, y- your world is different. For Americans, I learned Spanish for about eight months. And then I was done. And I was done forever. I can roll my R's. That's what I kept. But here's the difference between the Spirit, because the Spirit is a good teacher. The Holy Spirit teaches you to become a master at what you're learning. And by that, we mean application. He is teaching you so that you will put what you read in Scripture into practice, and so that you will know how to teach others also. That's how we measure mastery. That's how we measure mastery. And so someone has truly learned something at the point that they're not only practicing it in their lives, but they can also extend those truths and teach another person and disciple them in the way. That's what mastery looks like. And that's what the Holy Spirit is teaching us for, is for mastery. 1 Corinthians 1.12 says, Now we've received, not, uh, sorry, 2.12, I think not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us, which things also we speak. In other words, if you know it, and you know it, you're going to speak it. You're going to speak it. Now I want to focus on this last part here that says comparing spiritual things against other spiritual things, right? Of all the things of the earth, okay, Do you guys see this here, it says that the Holy Ghost is going to teach comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You see that? You read that? Okay, this is going to be the last point. You ready? This is a big one. It's a doozy. I'm landing, I'm landing the plane, but this is a big thing you need to understand. Okay, an important truth. Of all the things of the earth, what is spiritual? I mean, what's truly spiritual? Not, there's not a whole lot. The only tangible, tangible spiritual entity that I know of that's available for me for the sake of proving, that's, that's what this word compare means. The word compare means to interpret in relation to something else. That's what it means, to, to interpret in relation to something else. The only thing I know that I have access to like that for proving, analyzing, critiquing, and synthesizing my world is the Bible. I can't think of anything else. Now, the Spirit a, is a teacher, And he helps me. But the thing in which I rely in order to compare spiritual things to spiritual, this is it. This is what I got. This is the spiritual thing. Now let me explain to you how this works. I interpret spiritual things against other spiritual things. So when I hold the Bible up against itself, Chapter against chapter, verse against verse, book against book, when I hold it up against itself, it forms a matrix of truth. And that matrix of truth is the rock on which I stand. Comparing scripture with scripture, spiritual with spiritual, gives me the framework for everything I will ever need to know about life and godliness. Everything. And the spirit will help me to walk it out. So the the way that this is worded here in the King James is different than it's worded other places. Let me just point that out to you, okay? The way that we're taught from this passage in in my Bible is that I'm to compare spiritual things with spiritual things against one another. Now, I don't just hold this book up to the world as a lens to look at everything through, just to look through it. I can't just guess. I compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture in order to create the filter for the lens that I establish. So here's the key point. Wisdom, because it's established by God's word, is the lens by which we engage the world. And we do that by comparing scripture with scripture. And this is is real simple, but I want to make sure it's clear. So the way I establish doctrines, the way I establish the truths for my life, is when I see patterns in the Bible form a network of truth. I don't get to take one thing out like this and just kind of wave it around and say, you know. No, what I have to do is I have to take the network of truth to help me see the world. That's why we compare Scripture with Scripture. Because I've compared the Bible against the Bible, now I have a pattern to hold up to my reality. For knowing what's true and what's false, for knowing what areas of inconsistency exist in my life, for knowing how to lead in ministry. I need it. I need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Let's look at verse 14 as we close. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things." Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, don't we? We have the mind of Christ and that's where we need to, that's where we need to end today. See, between the Spirit of God and the patterns that I find within the Word of God, I'm literally empowered to have the mind of Christ. It's available to me. I mean, can you, can you think of anything better yeah, that's what this, We sang that. We just sang that, didn't we? I, can, I cannot think of anything better or anyone wiser or anyone stronger. And because, because I can't think of anyone wiser or stronger, the most amazing promise to me is that by God's word and through the power of his spirit, I can have his mind. What is that to you? I mean, there's a lot of people in the room right now. What is that to you? Is that some just cute little devotional thing that you're going to pick up today and walk out and get in your car and go to Chili's? You're going to go to Chili's? Get a little chicken sandwich? (laughs) Think nothing of it, right? Oh, that that was fun. That was a good time. No, listen to me. Do you understand the depths of what we just talked about? How does... Your perspective of what we just read is a life-altering thing. Yes. Now, now here's the question for you. Are you going to be that mature person that we talked about? Mature enough to say, "I don't yet have the indwelling of the Spirit in my life, and I don't yet know Christ as my savior." But I'm open to it. I'm open to finding out whether or not the Christ of the Bible, if that's if that's the right way, I'm open to that. We're going to give an invitation, and we're going to give you an opportunity to come and talk with somebody, and actually, actually, give you an opportunity to find out whether or not it's true. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior. There is no more important decision that you could ever make in your entire life than to know Him and to put your faith in Him. And by doing that, the Spirit of God indwells you. And then, listen, there's some of you in this room today who recognize that you've completely neglected the power and the wisdom that's been extended to you. You've been a bad steward. You've been a bad steward of truth. And you've been a bad steward of what God's given you in His Spirit. And we need to get that right. We need to start believing the Bible for what it really is. And we need to start relying on the Spirit for who He really is. He needs to transform us, and we need to give ourselves over to that work. It's no easy thing, no light thing. It's a big deal, it's a big decision. But it is critical. We are the stewards of the mysteries of God. We need to live like it, we need to act like it, we need to own that. If the worship team can come up. I'm going to pray. If you've got a decision to make during the worship set, I invite you to come up and grab a hold of somebody and pray. We need, we need God. We need His wisdom. We need to not abuse it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, I, I have to be honest with you. This passage, is, this is there's so much more that could be said. And uh, I ran out of time. And, I, and, I, and to be honest with you, I ran out of wisdom. There's so much here. It would have taken me weeks and weeks to study. And, um, but Lord, uh, I'm so grateful that you've given us each the capacity to go to the Bible and to study it for ourselves and to know it and to believe it and to live it and to teach it. And Lord, you want to make us, uh, you want to, make us to fully understand uh, your word. And uh, there are no more mysteries. It's it's there. I mean, there may there may be things we don't understand. There may be things yet to be revealed. But but in terms of your word, um, man, you've left left us with so much. And uh, we need you to transform us and cause us to believe it and to live it out. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today um, who's struggling with belief or or is questioning. Um, I pray that Your Spirit would provoke them and move them forward, that they might have a conversation with someone, that they might recognize that this is a severe thing. There's a lot of gravity here. It's a very sober, sober thing, and that they need to they need to at least explore it. What if what if Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Lord, I pray that You would give them eyes to see. And God, for those of us who neglect Your Word, and we shun it, and uh, you know, we sleep on it. Um, forgive us. Help us to know what we have. And teach us. Teach us to revere your very words. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times, and information about our disciple making ministry, please visit our website at CAYA dot L I